Welcome to the Hammond High podcast. My name's Andre Longley, and in this episode, I discuss the musician Prince with rock journalist Barney Hoskins. April 21st marks five years since the artist's death at his Paisley Park studios in Minneapolis. Although that city was very much part of Prince's identity, he had an affection for London, visiting often to play shows in both arenas and small clubs. In 1994, he opened his Sign of the Times shop in Camden. Barney Hoskins is editorial director of Rock's Back Pages, the online library of music journalism, which also has its own podcast. He had the privilege of joining Prince's touring party in the early 80s, and as you'll hear, had a somewhat frosty encounter many years later. Anyway, here's Barney and me enjoying some Prince nostalgia. So, Barney Hoskins, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for asking me. We're here to talk about Prince. Um, obviously, you, your history of music journalism, you've, you've covered a lot of artists over the years. But I actually only just recently read your book about Prince from the mid-80s, Imp of the Perverse. So it's a bit of a treat to be able to speak to somebody who was... Um, on the subject at that time. When, when did you first come across Prince as an artist? I think that must have been uh, when I first said, I want to be your lover um, on the radio. Uh, I can't think I'd have been aware of him before that. I heard it on the radio in, I guess it must have been 79, wasn't it? And um, I was just instantly struck by it because in some ways, it was kind of formulaic R&B, funk, soul, you know, but it just had something special. Even at that point, there was just something distinctively kind of different and uh, and just kind of sexy and stylish. And, and it just, and I just thought, Prince, well, you know, it's just probably, he's probably just going to be another, you know, <clears throat> sort of passing r&b star you know he'll have a couple of hits <laughs> and but this is really good i really like this uh so that would have been it i think it's an amazing track isn't it and it's it's a it's a it's a disco funk song really that just bounces along it's quite light and nimble it's not um weighed down by lots of huge production which he kind of did do a bit later on but yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that they, there was so much career before purple rain or even before the song 1999 really raised him in his conscious in yeah. public consciousness and those albums in the 70s where he toyed with funk and toyed with disco and toyed with punk to a certain extent um showed the originality that early on didn't they Oh, absolutely. And I suppose the next thing I would say after my reminiscence about I Want to Be Your Lover, and I didn't buy the Prince album or the very first album either at that point. Um, but so the next thing that I was aware of was must have been reading something about this kind of, you know, Prince Mark II, this new iteration of Prince, the, you know, the punk funk guy wearing the two-tone badge, and the sort of leotard and all of that stuff, you know. Um, I don't know whether it was, I think it must have been an interview either in NME and or in New York Rocker. Um, Andy Schwartz did an interview with Prince. It was a cover story for New York Rocker. And, and I thought, well, uh, that's not the guy I imagined when I heard I Want to Be Your Lover. And I, I think I saw 
the cover of the, the second album, which is just called Prince, and he looked very R&B. Suddenly he wasn't looking very R&B anymore. And so the next thing I did was buy Dirty Mind, I guess must have been. I think I bought I Want to Be Your Lover on as a single. I think I still have a 45 of that. But the first album I bought was Dirty Mind. And um, I still think in many ways it's his greatest record, uh, which sounds daft really, but I love it because I've played it to death. Um, I was obsessed by it. And um, I mean, I just think musically it's every single track on it is just so kind of lean and tight and funky. And yet it's very sort of low tech, lo-fi, done in a very small 16 track studio in Minnesota, etc. You know the story. Um, and you know, and then, and then there's a, you know, there's a song in it called When You Were Mine, which, I mean, might be the greatest power pop song ever recorded, you know, and, and, and that just knocked me out, you know, because it, that wasn't funk. There was a lot of, of soft, lo-fi funk on the record, but this was like, this was like, clearly this, this guy had been listening to kind of new wave power pop, you know, and, and as we know, and he grew up in a city which was, which was, uh, well, it, it was a very white city. You know, the black population was very small in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, so he was exposed to a lot of rock and roll and, you know, power pop and prog rock and all of that stuff. And so I was intrigued, as I think a lot of journalists were, by this guy because he just seemed to draw on, it just was un pigeonholeable and that's of course what we love as music journalists because then we want to try and find a new pigeonhole to stuff somebody in <laughs> and you never quite managed with prince as a as a profession no. did you because he then kind of created his own pigeonhole by creating the minneapolis sound and or you know yeah. claiming to to create it there is no pigeonhole for prince you know there just isn't um was it clear at that time that he was such a prodigious talent and not just a quirky pop act? I think certainly um, <clears throat> that album convinced me that this was a heavyweight uh, talent, you know. And I did then work backwards um, and listen to the first, certainly the second album, I listened to Prince, that album Prince. Um, and, and I just thought, yeah, you know, uh, this guy has really just got something. I can't stop listening to these songs, you know, Dirty Mind, you know, uh, Head, When You Were Mine, <clears throat> um, Uptown. I can still listen to them with enormous pleasure, you know. Um, and then the real kind of uh, sort of road to Damascus moment was me happening to be in New York in very, very early 1981 going to see him at the Ritz Theatre and that was uh, just absolutely sort of jaw-dropping experience you know um, I mean even though the what kind of elements of his live uh, performance and the way the band looked and you know that was there was sort of just kind of naff and a bit ridiculous and and the sort of x-rated kind of thing that was going on there was on one level a bit sort of a bit risible. Um, he was just so riveting as a performer. He was just in total command, um, both in terms of um, 
the kind of funk grooves that the group was playing. And also just in terms of his like ability to tear off a kind of really bitching guitar solo. I mean, it was like this kid can really play guitar as well, you know, and he was just mesmerizing. I mean, to me, it was like the first time I saw Mark Bolan play. It was like a sort of black Mark Bolan. I, I mean, I can't even describe it. It was just, it was just uh, an astonishing experience. I walked out into the, into the cold, icy cold Manhattan night, inverted. Saw him when he came to London, Lyceum. So then I was just like, this guy is just, is kind of the most talented solo artist around at the moment. That was my feeling. Yeah, that, that, that particular gig, which it does come up in kind of rock histories, doesn't it? Because it was also, it was quite a celebrity, well, well, well attended by celebrities. And I think it was Mick Jagger went, and that's what lent to them getting a support slot with the Stones, which didn't go so well. But it, it, it sounds like it really did have the great and good of New York claiming to be there at least to witness this this birth i wasn't aware of jagger being there but it makes sense and jagger obviously would have responded to the prince i mean there are there are very few artists that have performed in, in such a kind of sexual and androgynous but also unself-conscious way you know and so both jagger and prince have that in common um they they were just so free and and so kind of completely convincing as physical performers i should say that i, I may have got the timeline wrong about that but um, whether he saw him at that gig or not he certainly picked up on this kid that had emerged out of minneapolis and yeah and they, they did a famous show um, or a couple of shows supporting the stones which didn't did. go down so well that kind of came just before a major shift in what Prince was doing, what didn't it? Because the um, the band coalescing around around him was around that time as well, wasn't it? And that, that was really a big change for his career. Yeah, I mean, the revolution was a very, very important part of uh, the Prince story, you know, and I think he, even though in some respects, he was always a solo artist. He was always this kind of, you know, genius who could do everything himself could play everything himself you know just sort of multi-talented like a kind of you know amadeus of of kind of pop funk he liked the idea at least in principle of a band and i think he wanted something like his very own version of sly and the family stone you know in other words it was kind of multiracial, and it was you know it was well, we use the phrase like multi-gender, which which wouldn't have made much sense back then. But I mean, that idea of like, you know, it was a, a, a kind of motley crew, a big, happy uh, family of um, different kinds of people, you know, and uh, and I think that was that was nice to see. You know, it was certainly um, important that there was at least one woman in the group. And then later when, when uh, Wendy came along, there were two. So, you know, it, it wasn't just another kind of band of guys, you know, uh, there were so many all male bands. And so even despite like post-punk, so few uh, groups that consisted of men and women, 
Um, that that was refreshing. And it's um, it played a major role in in the film when that happened. So he started working on Purple Rain after 1999, and in the film, for for a you know for a noted rock egoist and uh, you know somebody who's always centre of attention, even in the film he credits Wendy and Lisa with the song Purple Rain before playing it so that the film very much embraces that um the the band being around him in fact one of my favorite moments is in that song where he goes over and gives wendy a peck on the cheek who then grimaces as if it's the most horrific thing that's happened to her on stage which i think brilliant that it stayed in were you um so were you following them closely were you, were you writing about them at this time uh f- yes i um <clears throat> I was living in Los Angeles uh, when the 1999 tour was was underway. And there had been at least one piece in NME. So I was writing for NME <clears throat> on the West Coast. And I think there'd been one piece, as I said, Chris Salovich, I think had done this um, interview, if memory serves. But they asked me to go on the road with Prince and the Revolution were just prints as it, I can't remember how it was billed them the 1999 tour. So I flew to the Midwest and I saw three shows, I think. Um, sort of Kalamazoo, ending, ending up in, in his hometown, Minneapolis, and sort of hanging out a bit, not with him. I did, I was introduced to him for just a, a fleeting moment. He was not doing any interviews. He'd already kind of begun that, that, um, that whole like I'm not talking to anybody um, thing that he was doing. I I shook his hand, he emerged from his dressing room and I shook his hand and that was the extent of my involvement with him. I saw him around, but I hung out a bit after show things. I remember spending an evening mainly in the company of Lisa Coleman and and others. I I think that must have been after the, the final Minneapolis show, something like that anyway. I mean, you know, it was phenomenal seeing him, what a two and a half years on or so, maybe two years on from the Ritz gig and, the, and then a year on from the last seeing how far he had come and what a big thing this was. I mean, Little, Little Red Corvette essentially had made him a pop superstar or a pop, so he was a, bit, he was a, he was a star now. You know, he wasn't playing the Ritz anymore. And these were big arenas, like hockey arenas. And it was it was a big, big deal. He was a star. I mean, it was interesting seeing the makeup of the audiences because there were a lot of white kids coming along. Um, Kalamazoo, I seem to remember, was was really black audience. And then by the time I got to Minneapolis, it was more white, you know. So a lot of white kids were really responding. This was, we were into the era of MTV, the little red Corvette video had had like, you know, a lot of play on MTV. So he was crossing over, you know, and, um, you know, you you started to compare him to, to someone like Michael Jackson, inevitably that became a kind of thing that went on in the eighties is, is like, you know, the difference between Prince and Michael Jackson, but you know, we're only a year away from, from the release of Thriller at this point. So it's suddenly like, well, Prince is a slightly quirkier, slightly more idiosyncratic uh, version of Michael Jackson. What was it like? What was the feeling on the, on that tour and being amongst the musicians? Cause 
one of the things that I'm sorry, one of the many things he's famous for is being anti-drugs. And obviously um, his his death kind of called uh, the light of that to a certain extent. But certainly in the 80s, it seems that he was against that whole scene. And therefore, presumably the gig and the and the the touring experience was somewhat different to some of the other major acts that you might have been around. Well, um, you know, uh, being circumspect about it, uh, I will nonetheless say, yes, at this after show party, there were, <laughs> there were drugs at this after show party and Prince wasn't there. Um, I mean, this was a private thing. It wasn't like a backstage thing. It was in a hotel. I can't even really remember. I mean, it was really, really laid back. It might even have been Lisa's hotel room. I mean, my recollection is like 10, 15 people just sort of hanging around. It wasn't industry thing. It was, it was kind of friendly. But Prince definitely wasn't there. And the other memory I have very strongly is of, uh, you know, <clears throat> travel. I mean, I got... I got to know Vanity quite well as well. Vanity Six, who were one of the support acts on that. <clears throat> so it's Vanity Six, it was the time. It was this whole Minneapolis kind of review, really, on the road. And I remember, you know, we were traveling around these buses and we pulled over at some, some um, you know, diner, truck stop diner type thing. And uh, Prince very much kept himself. You know, he was walking around with this gigantic bodyguard chick, Huntsbury. And... It was a bit weird that he just didn't seem to want to kind of fraternize with everybody else. You know, it wasn't a big happy family. That was the sort of paradox of it, you know. Um, and I got the sense from the others, including Vanity, who had been his girlfriend, but didn't seem to be close to him at all on this tour. Um, that was just my perception that they, they were, there was a slight vibe of he's a bit up his own arse, isn't he? You know, um, he's too he's too kind of good for us now. He's too important. And I, and I kind of felt that, you know, he was retreating somewhat into his own mystique. That's interesting. And obviously he he sold his mystique very well for the next couple of <clears throat> a couple of decades. Um, but, yeah, I suppose it would be hard for cracks not to appear or at least for there not to be tension when there's that divide. Mm. What was it you, you said before that you shook his hand uh, when you first when you met him? And actually, for our listeners, that's what we used to do to greet people in the old days, in the 80s. <laughs> grab people. <laughs> younger listeners. Yes. Yeah. Fearlessly, you'd grab Prince's hand, unaware that you might cause him harm. But... <laughs> Was there, I don't know, I'm kind of asking what the handshake was like. Was there warmth in it or was it just a very quick... No, uh, absolutely no warmth whatsoever. Um, he looked very suspicious and unsettled by the fact that there was a journalist there at all. I mean, I assume he was aware that the enemy had sent someone to go on tour. Uh, he must have approved that, but he kind of looked like a sort of rabbit in the headlights. So, um, or he was just, you know, he was just working the mystique, you know, he, he certainly wasn't friendly. The album you picked up on Before Dirty Mind, which in the, in your book from, uh, from the mid late eighties, you referenced as your favorite back then. So it's obviously stuck with you. It's also notable that you, you, you were fairly critical of controversy at the time mm. and even of uh, sign of the times, which, after Purple Rain is probably seen as his critically yeah. acclaimed album. How do you look back on, on those albums now? Well, uh, Sign of the Times, if I was critical of it, I mean, 
I think um, <clears throat> I just I don't know how critical I was. I, I I certainly accept it as as a pretty extraordinary piece of of work. Like many double albums, I mean, I think you know at least in the old days, double albums were always mixed bags, and it was very rare to find a double album sort of consistently great from from start to finish. So I, I think I would probably still feel there are things on some of the times that that aren't like top notch but the the the, uh, the outstanding tracks are, are really really remarkable i think um so could it have been boiled down to one absolutely kind of classic album possibly you know uh but there's one and a half great records so i think controversy i think was a record and i think i think i would still feel controversy um isn't a great album coming after Dirty Mind. It takes itself a bit too seriously, I think, whereas Dirty Mind just, just felt quite kind of unassuming and, um, and, and simple in some ways. Whereas uh, I think he was just starting to get a little bit pompous in areas on, on controversy. Um, I still think that what he did in the 80s, you know, from Dirty Mind through to, uh, certainly through to Sign of the Times and some things after that, is a pretty amazing run of, of of records, you know. So, yeah, I mean, he to me was the outstanding talent of that decade, you know, uh, and certainly one of its biggest stars. But but the least predictable, most interesting, really, of all the superstars that that somewhat reviled decade produced. What what did you make of um, where he went after Sign of the Times? Because that does seem like a kind of break point when he started to lose his way a bit. I'm afraid that's what I feel. Um, it's not to say there weren't lots of things that <clears throat> caught the ear or that I listened to after that, but I kind of felt as you know as I'd felt with lots of other artists that I loved, and that goes for the Rolling Stones and David Bowie and. Todd Rundgren and you know Al Green and you name it so many of the great artists who they they kind of seem to have this kind of window of maximum effectiveness where they where they made four or five astonishing long playing records you know consecutively and then it's almost like you kind of run out of it sounds a bit prosaic to say it, but you just run out of ideas. Um, you might then come back further down the road. You might make a comeback. I mean, I think Neil Young as well. I mean, a lot of those artists who made extraordinary records in the 70s, you know, made four or five really classic out Stevie Wonder. I mean, you know, I don't know what it was about that decade, but the artists I'm talking about, that's what they did. You, you've got a handful of record, consecutive records there that are all absolutely astonishing. And then it kind of peters out for whatever reasons. It might be drug abuse. It might just be um, the rest of the world catching up with you or, or outdating you or, or taking music in new directions that you don't quite keep up with. But that's my feeling really about Prince is he just kind of exhausted himself. He exhausted, he'd mined the scene really. And the last track that just really blew me away was probably Alphabet Street. In that kind of run of, of, of releases, there were things, isolated things that popped up further down the road that I really loved. Um, 
and the most recent of which would 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 be you know 17 days on on piano and a microphone you know the posthumously released um 1983 just prints at the piano which in many ways is my favorite kind of prince of all princes is is him at the piano that track just absolutely floored me and i wished he i'd always wished that he'd done more of that you know one of the highlights of the 1999 tour that i saw in 83 was when he just albeit on a kind of this this sort of um hydraulic like sort of little stage thing that lifted up with a with a baby grand on it i mean it was it was already high production values but it was still just him at the piano nobody else on stage singing um how come you don't call me anymore and you know, I mean, at the end of the day, when people say, well, you know, what was so great about Prince? All the other stuff is is sort of, it's neither here nor there. The reason that we love Prince is because he moved us. And when he when he sang things like, how, how come you don't call me anymore? Um, or 17 Days. I mean, I, I the emotion is so, is so, to the forefront it's so his 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 singing is so is so emotional and uh so i think the post sign of the times the things that really get to me are are when the thing the things i really just don't dislike they just bore me silly is when prince is just doing kind of funk by numbers which he could just do in his sleep and it's just, to me, it's really lazy. It's just really lazy. It's of no interest to me because, because there's nothing original there. But, um, but when, he does, when he does kind of ballads, those sort of gospely, soulful ballads, um, or the version of Mary, Don't You Weep on piano and microphone. It's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, my God, I could listen to that stuff all day. It's absolutely stunning, isn't it? And uh, I hope there's more to come out of the vault from those kinds of recordings because it was a brilliant. It's as good as a Are- it's as good as Aretha Franklin. You know, when you when you listen to Aretha alone at the piano doing sort of gospel, doing, I mean, it's it's on that level of just just at natural uh, talent and in that uh, just this kind of channel of extraordinary emotion somebody just so deeply sort of saturated by gospel tradition and soul music. I mean, you think of something like Adore on, um, on Sign of the Times, and this is someone who, who's just so completely immersed in what I would call the great kind of Philadelphia soul ballad tradition, you know, Gamble and Half and Tom Bell. You know, he could just take something like that and absolutely take command of it. In the same way as I was talking earlier about Power Pop, you know, I. I the other great power pop track, I could never take the place of your man. I mean, it's so effortless for him. Um, and, um, you know, when he's kind of channeling, I don't know, like Todd Rundgren, you know, again, it's like he just sort of, he just grabs a hold of it and and just makes it his own. Um, it's just, it's chameleonic, but it's unarguably convincing. It's, yeah, it's utterly natural, isn't it? I think we're lucky to have YouTube these days because for anybody who's not a Prince fan the stripped down stuff the piano stuff if you watch videos of him controlling a room 
it's like watching Messi dribble. He knows exactly where he's got the audience. Yes, yeah. That's a great idea. He's the Messi of he's the Messi of Black American pop. I like that. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it should be a basket. He was a big basketball fan, wasn't he? Yeah, he's, 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 but he's too short to use that 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 metaphor. I think we'll stick <laughs> with Messi. <laughs> and the um, so so did you uh, meet him again? In later years after that first tour funny you should ask <laughs> um well yes i did i mean I'm, i you know i count it as one of my most fortunate experiences that i was able to interview him um i never expected to interview him i mean i think you know when you look back he did more interviews than you think he did but there were long stretches of time when he never spoke to anybody um and when he had signed to clive davis's Arista label uh, and he came to London to, to play uh, this, this kind of slightly bizarre show to support Rave Unto the Joy Fantastic I think was the name of the not terribly good album I mean to me he was already on autopilot at that point uh, but he was still a genius and um, Mojo uh, asked me if I wanted to interview him well you know, the, the reply was out of my mouth before uh, they'd even finished the question, you know. So, uh, yeah. And this would have been about 2000, I think, uh, not long after I moved back to London. And um, so my timing was was good. And but to say that it was uh, an entirely pleasurable experience would be inaccurate because actually it was quite uh, <laughs> it was uh it was one of the more bizarre interviews I've done in my life. I will say that. But just to be alone in a room at the Inn on the Park Hotel in Mayfair with Prince was surreal. I mean, it's one of those moments where you just can't, you're kind of pinching yourself because you can't really believe that this is happening to you. I mean, it's happened to me a few times in my career and that was definitely one of them. It was like, I must be dreaming this. This is really him. The PR has, has has left the room, and and I'm just sat here with with Prince, and um, you know, I mean, it was it was stressful as anyone who's interviewed him would attest because you couldn't run, you couldn't record the conversation, so you were simultaneously trying to keep the flow of the of the conversation going while jotting down, and I don't have shorthand what he was saying. You know, and it and and I still that was infuriating because you didn't really want to miss anything. And I never understood it because his his kind of beef with journalists and the you know that the, the, they were reporting things that he'd said inaccurately. Well, I mean, you know, how much more inaccurate is it going is it going to get when you're sc scrawling things down on a on a pad trying to keep up with what he's saying? It just seemed like completely you know he's just going to achieve the opposite result but I did my best to you know to to scribble down what he was saying and I mean the thing that what what happened I mean, most of at least half of the interview is taken up with with him you know he had one way or another he had done his research in a sort of weirdly paranoid sort of way I mean he was kind of quite paranoid he was sort of a bit like someone like Phil Spector, you know. So he had he had read these pieces I'd written about him, including a very, very big piece I had done not that long before for Mojo, where I had talked to a lot of 
a lot of people who had, in one capacity or another, had worked with Prince. And he was really bothered by this. And his line of argument was, you know, uh, these people aren't qualified to talk about me and my work. Um, and he objected to the fact that Susan Rogers had been quoted extensively. Um, I mean, and he literally was sitting there saying, you know, what does Susan Rogers know about me, you know? <laughs> and, you know, to which the only answer was, well, she did sort of sit next to you for about seven or eight years engineering pretty much everything you did at Paisley Park and elsewhere. So, do you know what? I mean, if anybody is qualified to talk about working with Prince, it's probably her, but he would hear none of it. You know, he just, uh, it, it, it was an extraordinary thing to hear, you know, that really what he was saying was no one knows anything about me other than me. And maybe that was true. You know, maybe that was true because he was a very, he was a very strange guy. It was a very, very, um, you know, complicated, complex and peculiar guy, you know. And then the best thing of all was when I think... I, I can't remember whether he knew about my book, Imp of the Perverse, or it somehow came up in conversation that I had written a book about him. I can't believe he wasn't aware of it because there weren't that many books about Prince at that point. But he actually did ask me what, what it was called. And <laughs> I had to tell him that it was called Imp of the Perverse. And given he was in this sort of, this strange religious phase where he was, you know, a Jehovah's Witness and allegedly going door to door with Larry Graham, formerly of Sly and the Family Stone, who we already talked about. And, you know, he, he had this whole religious thing going. That title did not endear me to him. So he asked me to explain it. And uh, I wriggled and writhed and contorted myself trying to make it sound okay. And obviously citing Edgar Allan Poe, whose short story it was named after. And I mean, in a way, what I would say is he was playfully quite sadistic with me. Uh, he was like a cat toying with a mouse. Um, he was having enormous fun at my expense, making me uh, squirm. Um, and, you know, it was OK. I mean, it was all right. I didn't feel humiliated, but it was it was um, <laughs> it, it was it was. Uh, it wasn't the easiest conversation, but he was having the time of his life, making me feel like an idiot. Um, and there we are. <laughs> at, least, at least you were there. I, mean, he, I was there. He yeah. did have a. He certainly had a playful streak, and he seemed to have a cruel streak. There's a. There's a story which one of his former band members told. I can't remember who it was, but I think they got Springsteen up on stage. And he deliberately changed the song or changed the key to trip Springsteen up. And then he turned to somebody and said, see, I told you he couldn't play. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that sounds very hip. You know, the, the, the bedroom interview thing, I was trying to think, what's the weirdest experience I've had like that? And that was in a holiday inn in Guildford with Jedward. So a really, <laughs> but probably equally weird experience. <laughs> I suppose the other thing with the the... The, the, the cruel and playful side of him is one person we've not mentioned so far is his fellow Minnesotan, Bob Dylan, who in many ways is a million miles from Prince, but actually a lot of things we've, you've been saying 
could be translated to Dylan, the, the kind of crawl streak, the hugely successful run of albums and then kind of losing their way. Um, yes. It, it, just, it just seems like there, there's certain parallels. I'm partly saying this because I'm a fan of both. Um, but it, do, do you think they're aware of each other particularly? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There is a, um, there is a similarity between them and that may just be entirely coincidental. I'm sure ultimately has nothing to do with both hailing from Minnesota, but they've, they both sort of, in a sense, um, used a similar strategy, I would say, of, of kind of obfuscation and weirdness and, and, and just like throwing people's expectations, just creating a sense of enigma that no one could really get past. Um, I don't know that Prince was ever that influenced by, by Dylan. I, I, I suspect not particularly. I mean, there are some songs maybe where you could point to it, but it's, it, Dylan is not an obvious influence on uh, on Prince. I, I just don't think he's kind of, he's just not funky enough. There's not enough kind of funk or black, uh, black elements in Dylan's music. You know, uh, it's too folk based ultimately. And um, even though obviously in later years, uh, Dylan has got much more into the sort of, sort of blues roots of, of rock and roll and rockabilly and so forth. I still don't think, and the obvious influences on Prince were, you know, were Sly and Stevie and Jimi Hendrix um, and, uh, and one or two others. Uh, but I would say Todd Rundgren also to some great degree. And I always remember doing this big, big piece on Todd Rundgren, also for Mojo, and interviewing B.B. Buell, who's Todd's sort of consort in that time. And she always maintains it's, cap it's possible she just made this up, but that, the, uh, a sort of a, a pre-fame prince came to see Todd perform in Minneapolis and was like this little fanboy who went, who came to the kind of dressing room and and, and wanted to meet Todd and I, I I can kind of get that because Todd also was capable of doing everything in the way that Prince was and I just feel that must have been some kind of inspiration for Prince. I think um, for people who aren't Prince fans, one of the kind of the walls to getting into him, and he's certainly an accessible artist, after all he's a pop artist essentially, most people will like one or two songs, but is the, the sound that he created in the 80s, the Minneapolis sound it was called, does sound very 80s now, doesn't it? And it, it sounds very much of its time, and in the 90s it was a bit more derivative and taking off R&B at the time. And, um, I suppose what I'm asking is, other than the piano and microphone stuff, are there any other particular in points you'd give to, to people who aren't fans? What should they check out? I think you can buy pretty much anything he did in the in the 80s, um, certainly up to, um, I mean, you know, Love Sexy. The Black Album, obviously worth hearing. I mean, I love Dirty Mind, probably the best. Um, Sign of the Times, probably next best. I think there are things on Emancipation I really like. Um, and I like some of the stuff he did with uh, other Minneapolis Paisley Park artists. There's great things he did with the time. I always loved that first 
time album of the track cool i mean a lot of these things he he i mean he was so prodigious and prolific i mean as we all know a lot of these tracks were things he'd originally done for himself written for himself and then you know then he thought oh, i'll do this with you know the time or jill jones or you know whoever it might be um so i always like that that song cool that the time did i mean the, the time where we're, we're great on that tour they were a joy to watch in some ways more enjoyable than than some of prince's own live set you know um but um I mean, you know, there, there are things he did in terms of producing other artists. I think he, I think he, I mean, what you have to say about Prince is he, he, he just sort of, he worked too hard, I think. I mean, he, he just, in a sense, he was so tireless. He was so inexhaustible. I mean, he never slept. He just, I mean, and at a certain point, you kind of wanted him just to sort of, why don't you just take a break and just sort of, you know, just hit the pause button and just uh, think about wh what you're doing. Cause it just seemed like this, this sort of in crazed workaholism after a while. And you just wanted to go away and write some great songs, <laughs> which you just stopped doing after a while. You know, I know that, I mean, yeah, you can make a case for things like Diamonds and Pearls. It's a, not a bad pop record, but it's not a great pop record. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a record that any number of, or a, a good number of other R&B artists in that era could have made, or that he could have written for someone else, you know. Um, the thing that was sort of really distinctive, I mean, you're talking about the 80s sound. I mean, the thing is, a lot of 80s music still sounds a bit, a bit just mechanical and antiseptic. It's a lot of sort of, rather unsubtly used sort of sequences and drum machines and, and synths and MIDI keyboards. And it's, some of it stands up really well and some of it doesn't. The thing about Prince's records is they always just sound, there's something always organic about Prince's sound, even when he's, you know, you think about something like, um, you think about something like Kiss, the way he used drum machines, it never sounds sort of, sterile or ro robotic ever you know always sounds human and his use of electronics and drum programming and stuff was always funky always had that kind of human feel to it you know but i think by the by the eight by the 90s when he was kind of oh you know uh, sort of uh, absorbing influences of hip-hop and swing beat and, and that kind of stuff it just it just sounded it did start to sound mechanical to me, you know, even though you could say, well, this is quite funky. It just sounded like he was, he was recording on autopilot to me. The other thing that Prince knew how to create was definitely moments, wasn't it? And, you know, the Purple Rain, the film is built out of those live moments, bring it together. But um, the, some of the footage that's available online of, certain events so his Super Bowl performance has got a kind of legendary status even amongst Super Bowl performances um, and it is spectacular and I think it's added to by the fact there's a huge rainstorm going on and the last person you expect to see him braving the weather forget it it doesn't matter what I look like is it, <laughs> it's, it's it's amazing yeah um, and of course the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performance where he 
decides to upstage a beetle <laughs> in front of his son with um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. It's fairly bizarre, isn't it? Uh, you know, it does sort of show his disconnection from kind of appropriateness, if you like. And yet <laughs> you sort of love it at the same time. <laughs> You know, it's like, no, I'm not just going to be one of the great and the good who's just sort of meekly and deferentially going to, you know, stand here, you know, because I'm better than all these motherfuckers. <laughs> You've got George, George Harrison's son uh, grinning in the background like it's the greatest thing he's ever done. And even yeah. Tom he breaks a smile. He, he yeah. gets a smile out of it. It's just, it's just joyful, isn't it? It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's it's the sort of height of arrogance, but it's Prince. He gets away with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we leave that as the, the the end point? It's Prince. He gets away with it. Is <laughs> quite a good description. Barney Hoskins, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to go back down that memory lane. Thank you for asking me. Thank you so much to Barney for speaking to me. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe. We'll be back soon.